And if you don't have a Bible and you need a Bible, uh, raise your hand. We have uh, some people in the back that will be able to hand you one. We like to have our Bibles open um, because we want to see what the text says. I, I don't think we gather here to hear you know, my thoughts or ideas. We, we want to come and open up the Scriptures and read what the Scriptures say and understand uh, what it says. And for those of you who are visiting, we're in the middle of a series in Hebrews that uh, began in September, the first week of September. And we are now in chapter 4. So if you want to kind of mark your spot there, we're wrapping up chapter 4. And um, I think it was in the second week of the series, uh, I kind of laid down a, a challenge for, for those in our community to... Uh, I mean, laid down a couple of challenges, you know, kind of a couple of levels. One of the challenges was to read through the letter to the Hebrews in one sitting or perhaps you know, maybe in two sittings or so, and to do that over and over and over again to get us a sense of what the entire letter says. Because, uh, as I said in the very first week, the letter to the Hebrews is actually a sermon written in the first century to uh, a group of uh, Christians, Jewish Christians, we don't know exactly where. And, um, and it's a sermon written to them, and it quotes the Old Testament scriptures quite a bit. And so it's helpful to kind of read the whole thing as we're going through Section by section, it would be helpful for us to, for everybody to have understanding of that. So I think many of you have taken me up on that challenge, right? And then I had a, like another challenge, and that was to, um, to memorize sections of scripture. I said that I was going to try and memorize the entire book. And uh, I'm a little behind schedule. It's, it's pretty tough. And I know that I've heard from a couple of you said that you were intending to do that as well too. Um, but I still remember when I first said that that first Sunday, I, it was like deer in the headlights, like a lot of, like a lot of strange looks, like you've got to be kidding. There's like 13 chapters. And so, so I understand, uh, I understand the reservation on that, but, um, but then I, I think I would, if I were to amend that now, I would say, uh, I would encourage you to memorize maybe sections of it, maybe like a verse or two, just to get a couple of verses in, in your mind. And you know, you could do the first couple of verses of the, the entire book, when it says long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That would be a great passage to memorize and to be familiar with. Another one might be the very beginning of chapter two. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It's another great passage. Or you could do the beginning of chapter 3, where it says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and the high priest, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. There's lots of different passages that we could, uh, that would be very helpful for us to, to, to uh, hold on to, to memorize, or try to memorize, or to at least familiarize ourselves with very much. But if you don't do any of those, if you don't do a single verse, Sing, don't do any other verse of the letter to the Hebrews of what we have studied so far. I would encourage you to do today's passage. 
Because these verses today, which are in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14, 15, and 16, are, um, are kind of a high point at the beginning of this letter, the beginning of this sermon. In a lot of ways, the preacher is kind of, um, he's been opening up some passages of scripture to this, these people, and he's given some exhortations to them, and now he's kind of reached maybe a little bit of a peak right here at the end of chapter 4. And so that's our passage today. I think it's a very important passage and it introduces us to a very important concept that we're going to be discussing in the next couple of weeks. But today we're going to limit our time to just Hebrews chapter 4 verses 14, 15, and 16. And so I'm going to read them and then I will pray and then we will get started in our, uh, the teaching this morning. So Hebrews chapter 4 verses 14, 15, and 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have left us your scriptures. We thank you that you have, you have communicated to us through words printed on, on parchment and through words printed on a page and, and yet you mysteriously work through those words and that message to communicate to us. God, we ask that, um, that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what it is that you want us to know from this passage this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen and amen. So as I said, this is a very crucial passage. And this morning it could be broken down in a couple of ways that might help us to understand what the writer is saying. And the first one, I, I'll give you the three points. There's, there's three points we're going to be covering today. The first one is um, three things about Jesus. The passage says three things about who Jesus is. And then it says three things about who we are as well too. So three things about us. And lastly, two things about what we should do about it. So three things about who Jesus is, three things about who we are or about us, and two things in light of those first two, two things that we, uh, that we should do about it. So let's do the first one. Three things about Jesus. The first one, first thing, and this, all three of these are found in verse 14. Three things about Jesus. First is Jesus, the Son of God. Right there, it says, um, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And this is a very, um, this is a very common phrase throughout the New Testament, but I think that the writer has been, uh, the preacher of Hebrews, has been doing kind of two tasks. He's been talking about the humanity of Jesus, who he is. And so here he uses just the name Jesus. Just the name Jesus. Jesus which should remind us immediately of the humanity of Jesus. We're getting close to the Christmas season where we celebrate uh, the birth of Christ, the Advent season. 
And uh, I think of when the, one of the first times the word Jesus is used in the New Testament is on the lips of the angel that comes to Mary. Mary is, um, gets a visit from the angel and she said, the, the uh, angel says that you're going to be with child. Even though you're not married, you have not, uh, you've not been with the man, you, you're going to, to have a child. And that the angel says, and you shall give him the name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Just that, that name alone, Jesus. In the Greek, it's uh, Jesus, but it comes from the Hebrew Yeshua, um, which would mean Yahweh saves or the Lord saves. So Jesus, and so this emphasizes the humanity of Jesus, a flesh and blood person who lived 2,000 years ago. But then he adds this phrase, son of God as well, too, to emphasize the divine nature of who Jesus was. And this is what he's been saying all along at the opening chapters when God has spoken to us through a son whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the universe, being the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, upholding the entire universe by the word of his power, and making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's been speaking of the divine nature of Jesus. So here in the very first phrase, we have Jesus, the son of God, humanity, human and God together. That's the first one. The second one is the great high priest. And this is emphasizing the, the role as mediator between man and God. Now, remember, he's writing to, um, to people who would have been very familiar with, in Judaism. They would have been very familiar with this uh, understanding of high priest and temple and uh, tabernacle. They would have been very familiar with the Old Testament story. And so there, he's using a phrase that he actually kind of touched on. He kind of gave that out maybe in chapter 2, verse 17. He, he mentioned it, it mentions it a little bit. He says, therefore, we, uh, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. And in chapter 3, as we read earlier, uh, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. And now he says it yet for a third time here. And we're not going to get into a lot of details about what this is because he's going to spend the next several chapters, chapter 5, 6, 7, really fleshing this out. But I wanted to give you uh, kind of the basic understanding here and the basic idea. This would be, um, in the Old Testament, they would appoint one person to be the high priest who would be the mediator between the people of Israel and God. And so this, would, this is kind of a, an artist's rendering of the description of his clothing. Um, he'd have to have a, a head covering there. And on, the, on the, the headband, it would say, holy to the Lord. Um, he'd have to have this undergarment on, this purple garment, and it would have bells on the bottom here. And But I want you to notice here the, the kind of breastplate in the middle there. See, it's got 12 stones. And each of those stones represented one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So the entire people of Israel were represented by one person. Somebody from the, from the tribe of Levi to go into the tabernacle, into the place that was set aside as the God's dwelling place among his people. And so we're going we're gonna to look at this in, in uh, the next couple of weeks. But, um, but I wanted to show this to you. This is what the high priest is. Was the mediator between God's people and God himself. The mediator who would walk 
before in the presence, in the place of God's people to represent God's people, but also to re represent God to his people. And he would go into, here's an, uh, a rendering of the, the traveling tabernacle. We've, we've covered this in the, uh, the last couple of weeks. We talked about Moses and God leading the people of Israel out of their bondage of slavery in Egypt through Moses. Um, and then their grumblings in the wilderness and uh, their 40 years of wandering. But in the middle of that, in, in the book of Exodus, he describes, he says, I want you to build me a house. I want you to build me a tent. And this is an artist's rendering of what it looks like. And here's the outer courtyard. Uh, this is where the animals would be sacrificed here. There's a wash basin. And then this is the holy place where the priests could enter. And then back behind this curtain right there is where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. This was represented God's presence. And this is where the high priest could enter. Behind that curtain, he could go, and only one time a year, to go and make offerings and sacrifices. So the writer here in Hebrews is saying Jesus is, Jesus is the high priest, but then he adds the word great, the great high priest. So that's, that's the, uh, the first one. Jesus is the son of God, emphasizing his humanity, but also his deity. And then you have the great high priest that's emphasizing him as mediator between God and humanity, right? And then the third phrase there in uh, verse 14 is... Um, who passed through the heavens, who passed through the heavens. So in a way, he's a different high priest than other high priests who would have passed through kind of an earthly tabernacle representing, you know, into the very, uh, the Holy of Holies that represented the throne room of where God was. But Jesus is different. He's actually, because of his death, he passed through the heavens and into the actual throne room somewhere else. Not, the, not just the earthly representation, the actual throne room. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. This is power packed. This is loaded right there in verse 14. So those are three things about Jesus. Jesus, the son of God. Jesus, the great high priest. And we'll look at that in more detail in the coming weeks. And Jesus who passed through the heavens, which corresponds to how he begins the letter when he says Jesus is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. So those are three things about Jesus. Now we're going to spend some time looking at what the writer says uh, about us. And the first one is that we are weak. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Our weaknesses. I guess I don't have to convince many of you in this room that we are weak, um, that we are frail. Now, sometimes we like to think of ourselves as not being weak. We like to think of ourselves as strong. Um, but this term here, it conveys a whole range of, um, of weakness. In other words, it's like a whole range of not only physical weakness, which I'm sure all of us can experience, as we age, we, we can sense a physical weakness, but it's not just physical. It's also a spiritual weakness as well, too, which I think many of us, would, if we're honest, would be very, could very much identify. We are spiritually weak. We struggle. We also have a moral weakness that's conveyed in this. We sin. We fall short of 
the expectation and the glory that God has given to his creatures, we fall short when we sin and disobey and break that. There's also intellectual weakness. I mean, it's, it's this whole array of things. And it's a weakness that results in a misery or infirmities. Some, translation would, some translations use to, to translate this idea. And so these are weaknesses that we have. But what's interesting to note is in connection to what we've learned about Jesus. We have a great high priest. So we have someone who understands our weaknesses. Look at what it says, verse 15 again. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And he could have said, now we, we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. This is very emphatic what he's saying here. He uses a double ne negative. We do not have someone who is not able to sympathize with our weaknesses. This is what Jesus, the great high priest, does. This is why Jesus, though being fully God, came to be man, so that he could fully identify with our weaknesses. He lived on earth, flesh and blood, had the same kind of weaknesses that we all experience. And he, he, he had these weaknesses so that he could understand and sympathize with us precisely, with our state and our condition. Isn't that reassuring? A great high priest. And not, what, not, only not, not only is he able to understand and sympathize, he is not, we do not have a high priest who is not able to do that. And this corresponds with what the writer said earlier in verse 17 of chapter 2. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Earlier, he says, children are flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the exact same things. He had to be flesh and blood. And in verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So we are weak, but in the great high priest, we do not have someone who does not understand our Weakness. He's just getting started. Verse, the second one is, we are susceptible to temptation. I don't think many of us would uh, disagree with that sentiment, right? Anyone want to raise their hand and say they're not susceptible to temptation? Uh, good job. You're in the wrong place. Um, if, if, you, if you do. Um, we do, and that's the, from the rest of verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We have a high priest who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So we have someone who has been tempted. Do you feel tempted? Guess what? You have a high priest who knows exactly what that temptation is like. We have one who knows what it means to be tempted. And this is in the present tense. Uh, we know one who has been tempted in everywhere that we are without sin. It's uh, one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, um, yet without sin. It's actually in the present tense. So this is what this suggests is, is that even though Jesus is in heaven, 
even though he's at the right hand of the majesty on high, even though, as he said in verse 14, he's passed through the heavens, guess what? He presently understands, even though there's a distance and a separation, he is in no way aloof to understanding exactly what temptations you face today. And this is pretty emphatic as well, too. And he says this interesting phrase, in every way. What are some of the struggles and temptations uh, you experience? Don't, don't answer them out loud, but think about it. <laughs> think, go through and think of a couple of things that you struggle with. And be honest. Be honest with yourselves. Could be any number of things, right? Um, greed. Adultery. Pornography, homosexuality. Paul in Romans gives a list of things that calls, he calls all manner of unrighteousness. Evil, covetousness, these are all temptations. And I think we could find one of these that fits everyone in here. Covetousness, you covet, you want some things that even though you have things, you maybe want more. Malice, do you think the... Um, do you wish less than the best on some others? Envy? You jealous and envious of other people because of what they have and or what they what you have and they don't have? Murder? Strife? Deceit? Maliciousness? Gossips? Slanderers? Haters of God? Insolent? You ever tempted to be haughty or boastful? Inventors of evil? Then he adds this line, disobedient to parents. Ouch. Foolish? Faithless? Heartless? Ruthless? These are real temptations that I'm sure... I'm sure one of, we can identify with at least one of those there. But, but this is, that's not the point, just to point out what temptations you might experience. I bring all of those up to point out a very, uh, a very critical concept. Whatever, what, and this is what the writer is telling us. This is what God's word is telling us here. Whatever temptation you can think of, Jesus was tempted by them. Whatever temptation you think about, all, even that entire list and more, if there's other temptations, Jesus was tempted by them all. The writer says he was tempted in every respect according to all that we could experience, all the likeness that we have as humanity, all the temptations that we experience. Jesus experienced those in every single way. So one of the things that we cannot and should not allow ourselves to think, we should not allow ourselves to think that there is something, some temptation to which Jesus was immune. The writer does not allow for, for that. Jesus was tempted in every respect as we are. We can't say, well, I can see Jesus being tempted with, you know, X or Y or, but we, but I certainly, yeah, I just have a hard time thinking Jesus was tempted with, with Z. Yes, he was, according to what the writer of Scripture is telling us here. There is no realm of temptation to which Jesus was exempted. 
But the only difference is, and the writer makes sure he points that out in those last three uh, words of verse 15, yet without sin. For those who, um, th- for those who are, aren't Christians, um, and they may have some doubts about the claims of Christianity, some doubts about, uh, th- they may have a hard time thinking of Jesus as being uh, sinless. You know, as a human being who actually lived but did not commit any kind of sin, maybe have a hard time with that. But for many Christians, I think um, this has been a te- this is a teaching all throughout Scripture. Um, Paul says the same thing in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. Jesus, it affirms regularly that there was no deceit in his lips. Jesus was, was sinless. And I think for many of us, that's easier, that's easier to think about the last half of what verse 15 says than it is to think about what says right before that. I think it's easier for, for us to think that Jesus was out was without sin than it is for us to think of Jesus being tempted in every respect as we are, right? I think for many of us, it's, um, it's hard to think that Jesus could be tempted by the worst sins imaginable. But this is very, very important to grasp because unless we, unless we are certain about this concept, unless we know Uh, that Jesus was tempted in every respect, that he was even tempted with my junk, we cannot experience the the sympathy that we can receive because we have experienced that, okay? Because the reason why he... Because remember, it says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect was tempted just as we are. So if we, if we create a category of things from which Jesus was not tempted, then that's a category of things that we cannot get sympathy for. We have to, as what the writer is telling us here, we have to remember that um, we, we have to ask, so Jesus was tempted with that, and we could say, yes, Jesus was tempted with that. Without sin, but he was tempted with that. And because of that, he can sympathize exactly with your situation. If there's, this has tremendous um, impact on our confessing things to God as well, too. Because if we think of, uh, of a God who doesn't, can't understand uh, our weakness or can't understand uh, what our temptations are, then it's really difficult to bring before God and to confess and to humbly bring them to God, right? But if we remember he has been tempted in every way, then he can sympathize with everything that we experience. Then the door is opened up for us to be able to confess those things and for it to be cleansed, forgiven, and for relationship to be, to be right again. So I have a question. Have you ever thought, I can't bring that particular thing to Jesus because he just won't understand? I want to assure you what the writer of scripture here says, yes, he does understand. And yes, you can bring that to him. So we are weak. We are susceptible to temptation, but we also have needs. Because we are weak and because we have been tempted in every way, 
We are desperately in need of something. And the writer tells us in verse 16, therefore, let us, uh, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. We have needs and those needs are of grace and mercy. A helpful way to understand this, and, and I've, I've thought this for many years, and I keep testing it to see if, it's, if this is true, um, but it might be helpful for you to understand as well, kind of mercy and grace, mercy and grace. Uh, this is how I put it, and, and if, I ever, if, you have a, uh, if you have a correction for me on this, I'm, I'm well, welcome to hear it, but this has kind of always proved to be true. Mercy is not giving us what we do deserve, and grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy. Being merciful, God's merciful to us, is he's not giving us what we do deserve. In this case, for those of us who've rebelled against God and have sinned and fallen short, um, the scriptures make it really clear that what's deserved is, is death. I mean, spiritual death and separation from God. Um, but, but when we receive mercy from God through Christ, it's, he's not giving us what we do deserve. But that's not the extent of this good news. The, the, it goes, not only does it do mercy, but it does grace as well too. God gives us what we don't deserve. In this case, the righteous and perfect and sinless life that Jesus lived, that becomes ours. God wants to give that to us as well too. Mercy is not God not giving us what we do deserve and grace is him giving us what we don't deserve. And that both mercy and grace is what we need or what we need. So there we have Jesus, the son of God, Jesus, the great high priest, Jesus who has passed through the heavens is able to understand with us fully and completely, is able to sympathize with us fully and completely because of our weakness, because of our temptation, and is able to give us what we need. Having said that, the writer now goes, there's two things now I'm calling you to do. And that both of them begin with this phrase, let us, which has occurred so many times in Hebrews, let us. Two things, let us hold fast, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest. So the very, it's the base, on the very basis that we have Jesus as the Son of God, the great high priest who has passed through the heavens, he says, let us hold fast our confession. What does this mean? Well, um, he's talking to a group of people who have received Christ. They've said, I believe that this Jesus of Nazareth, this Jesus who lived... He truly was and is the son of God, that he, he did die on a cross, that he did get put into the grave and that he did come out of those graves and that all of those things were foretold beforehand in the scriptures pointing in this direction that a, a Messiah would come, that a suffering servant would come and that he would do these things and that he would bring his people back to him in Christ. And these people have said, yes, I believe that. Now, we also know from the rest of this book that these people were also experiencing a great deal of temptation and trial and trouble 
for believing these things. And so he's reminding them, hey, you have a great high priest. You have a high priest who totally understands your weaknesses. He understands your temptations. He understands the struggles that you're going through. And one of the struggles that you're going through right now is for you to turn away from that. And he says, but you have a high priest who understands. So hold fast. Hold fast to that confession. The word is to to cling to, like, if you could picture somebody trying to get away and somebody grabbing a hold of their leg and they, you know, slid all the way down to their ankles and they're just clinging like this to their leg. That's the idea behind this. Hold fast, but don't hold fast to a leg. Hold fast to confession. Your confession the, the, the facts about who Jesus is and what he has done for you, and you say, that is true. That is mine. I, it's holding fast to this, what it says in the very beginning of verse 14. We have a high priest. We hold on to the truth of that. So we hold on to this, this high priest. But we also are to draw near in verse 16. Let us then, here's the let us again. Let us then with confidence draw near. Draw near. And the idea here is uh, you're approaching in almost a reverential and respectful way to an authority person. So you're drawing near either to worship or you're drawing near. It might be used for like, say, like a king and somebody's coming to draw near to present something to a king or to make a petition of some kind. Uh, That's the idea here. And so we're called to draw near, but we're also to do this. um, Well, we're, we're supposed to draw near to the throne of grace, the throne of grace. Now, this is interesting because usually the word throne is used for a king, royalty, someone. And in the ancient world, that was also the judge. The one who would make judgments. Now we we kind of we live in a you know democratic society. We have the separation of powers, but back that wasn't true back in those days. Where we might have an executive branch, but then we have like a judicial branch, and so judgments would be done over here. But we have executives over here. That in in the ancient world, they would have understand both of those kind of being together. You would go before the throne, and this would be like the throne of judgment to hear what the king's the verdict that he was going to give. And so what this, what the the preacher here is saying, you're actually going before a throne, but you're not going a throne of judgment. You're going before a throne of grace. You're going before the throne of grace. And, And he's calling us, all of us, to let's go before that throne. And we have a reason why. Because we have confidence. But again, it's not a confidence in what we do or who we are. We have a confidence because we had a high priest who was one of us suffered for us and now is gone, passed through the heavens and is ahead of us and he's asking us to follow. He's petitioning us to come before God's very presence because he actually became like children, like flesh and blood like us. So we are to draw near the throne. We are to draw near the throne of grace. We are to do it with confidence. And lastly, as it says in verse 16, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. The very thing we needed was mercy and grace, and we receive that at the throne. So 
So Jesus is the great high priest who has entered into the holy place to offer sacrifices, and that sacrifice was himself on our behalf. And that is where our confidence lies, to approach the very throne of God with confidence. Let's hold fast that confession. Here's a, here's a quote that I read at the end of this last week and I thought was fantastic. The Christian, conscious of his utter inability to stand uncondemned before the judgment throne of God, should nonetheless be filled with confidence, not in himself, but in Christ. For he has a great high priest to stand in his place and answer for him. We have a great high priest who has entered into that holy place through his very sacrifice of himself. And it is that, uh, that sacrifice that we actually memorialize and that we remember today. Today we are going to participate in the Lord's Supper. And as we take the Lord's Supper, may we remember what this passage is reminding us. May we remember that we, um, that we can... What this represents, it reminds us that we actually are approaching the throne of grace with confidence because, because of what this meal represents, because of what Christ has done on our behalf, and that what he gives us is access into the very throne room of God where we can receive grace. So as Jody comes up to, um, Jody and Amy come up to, to play, um, I want us to, to close in uh, a word of prayer. And then when I'm done uh, praying, when you're ready, please come up and uh, help yourselves to the, the elements. On the night that our Lord was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it and gave thanks and said, this is my body. This is broken for you. Whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And after the dinner, in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the blood of my covenant, a new covenant shed for you. Whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your your words this morning that remind us that we have Jesus who is our great high priest and who suffered for us and on our behalf. God, we are grateful that we can share this meal together to remind us of that, to remind us of our confession. And God, we've... we've uh, we may have made this confession many years ago, but yet on this day, today, we can actually be reminded of it and reaffirm it in what we, what we are about to experience. And maybe for many, for some of us that we have not made that confession, we've not stood up and said, yes, I am weak. I need mercy and grace. I need someone who can sympathize with my temptations and struggles. And if, if so, may that person come and take as an act of saying, I'm holding fast to that confession. So God, we're grateful again for, 
you and what you've done for us. And we thank you for these elements, this bread and this wine to remind us. May we proclaim the, the death of your son as we take it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.